Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Hey, good morning. As I get set up here, um, I uh, for, forgive the. Uh, I think I think I'm getting a little bit of a cold, so that means I sound taller. <coughs> So you'll have to deal with that. Um, my name is uh, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is both an honor and a real joy for me, a real joy for me to teach from the book of Galatians. Um, we're going to be in Galatians chapter five, verses one through fifteen. That's kind of our our passage this morning, and I promise we're gonna we're gonna read it. We're gonna dive in. We're gonna look at some specifics, but I, but I want you to hang with me just for a second. Uh, I want to lay, uh, lay out some groundwork before we dive, uh, dive in too deeply this morning. Vickis, uh, who is visiting with us, Vic, Vic and Tanya, last week from Toronto, did a great job uh, setting me up, reminding us that, and all of us that we are true children of Abraham, children of the promise. We're heirs by faith. We are not children born of the law. We're not born into slavery. We're born into freedom. Um, what you see in this letter, in this book of Galatians, what you see in this letter over and over, over and over, is Paul hitting the same thing from multiple angles. He's desperate for the Galatian believers to get what's at stake. This book is absolutely, it's one of my absolute favorite books in the New Testament, and it is so because of the very thing that I get to talk about today, which is the absolute scandalous freedom that we have in Christ what it means for us to live a free life, it's a, it's a beautiful and amazing thing. To throw off the weights of sin and the law and what you yourself, because you yourself will sometimes put things on yourself, and what other people will try to put on you to prove that you're a righteous person. We are righteous in Christ. And it's an amazing thing. There was something that, that Nick mentioned briefly a couple of weeks back that, man, it was just so good and so important to understand this book, I wanted to bring it back and highlight it. If we're going to get the social religious kind of pressure that's happening in the Galatian church, this bit of background context is critical for us to see really, really clearly. You see, in ancient Roman culture, you were expected to participate in civic worship of the emperor or kind of like the Roman deities. Everyone did it. If you didn't do it, you faced ridicule and kind of suspicion from your neighbors for literally, because if something bad were to happen, maybe like the crops didn't come in, or uh, there was some other some other thing, some other bad thing. Um, essentially, what what people thought was that well, that happened because the gods had been neglected, and and you know, the, the poor Roman deities they they sure feel neglected often. They get they get their feelings hurt, and then come and do all sorts of bad things. But if you're the one that is not actually paying attention to the Roman deities, you're neglecting them. You're kind of the the person of like, ha you did it. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't pay attention to, to those deities. It's your fault. So you were supposed to participate. It was just a normal thing. People did it. People did it. But if you're a Jew, that's kind of sort of a problem, right? Can you imagine? You're a monotheist. You're not really supposed to be participating in these things. Um, you only worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, Caesar uh, was not totally stupid. Um, the Caesars were not totally stupid. They realized that the Jewish people would rather die than worship him. <laughs> uh, and, and so Rome made an exception uh, 
Jews were permitted to not participate in these civic worship and festivals. It was actually called the Jewish exemption. They got to actually step to the side, and they were kind of, uh, they were kind of okay. People still kind of looked at them sideways, you know, like weren't super crazy about the fact that they weren't, weren't participating, um, you know, but they kind of put up with it. There was an agreement that they'd put up with these weird monotheists, these backwater Jewish people that worship one, one, one God. So this is, this is some of the cultural kind of social religious context that's happening in Galatia. As believers in Jesus started to gather, they first gathered in Jewish synagogues. After all, we know that that's where Paul would typically go when he got to town, right? Eventually, he moved to house churches and things like that, but he, Paul would go to a synagogue. He would, start, he would start to preach. He would start to preach there. You see, Paul didn't really envision creating a new religion. Paul was not a convert to Christianity. He was born again into a new and a better covenant. A covenant that the Jewish scriptures promised would come. Born again into new life. He, he became a child of promise versus a slave of the law. So in Antioch and in other places, including right here in Galatia, we have Gentiles who are beginning to follow the Jewish Messiah and no longer participating in, in pagan festivals of worship that they're supposed to. The natural kind of logical thing for them to do is to claim the Jewish exemption because they're with the other Jews that are, you know, this is, makes sense, right? You know, they didn't want to worship the, other, the, the, the Roman gods. They had turned from that. The natural thing, that was a natural thing for them to do. But the Jewish leaders that are not necessarily following this Jesus guy just yet are like, wait a second, hang on. Hang on a second there, bub. You are not Jewish. Like, you're not Jewish. You don't get to claim the exemption. That, that, is, that, is, not, that is not for you. Do, you. do you even know what our laws are? Have you heard about circumcision? Yeah, no. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, if you're going to be one of us, you got to get in line with what it means to be one of us. There's all sorts of things you got to do. Starting with circumcision, and there's all sorts of other things. Festivals, you got to change what you're eating. There's all sorts of things that mean our law. We have to uphold our law, and you're, you're not doing that. So no, you don't get to claim this, and I don't think you belong here. So then you have the Jewish believers in Jesus, the people who are Jews, who have followed Torah that also now are believing in this new Messiah that are in the mix, and they're sort, of, they're sort of caught in the middle. They're kind of caught in this tension, starting to sweat. This is, kind of, this is what Karin preached about several weeks back, where Peter started to cave in to the religious and social pressure of first eating with the Gentiles and then not eating with them, and Paul steps up and confronts Peter directly. This was not, as Karin talked about, this was not a small squabble over some rules. This is a fundamental issue. This is about what qualifies you to be in the family of God or not. If the Galatians back down and start folding to the peer pressure and the weight of performing the law as a way to show that they're God's people and to prove it, they've missed it. They've missed it. Paul says they will be cut off from Christ. It won't just be the foreskins they cut off. Jesus changed the script. When Jesus came, he changed the script. He moved the story forward. It's in a different chapter. You don't go back. The story moves forward. 
Paul is like, this is done. We're moving ahead. So there's this tremendous amount of pressure to religiously conform to the law and to perform it, to go along and do the works that were required. Part of the reason I love Galatians so much is thanks to the message translation by Eugene Peterson. This, uh, this was actually the first book of the Bible that, uh, that he translated, and he did it while he was a pastor because he desperately wanted his people to hear Paul. This is the very first book he ever translated from, from, from the message translation. I purchased this copy right here, this, this, old, this old copy, in 2004. It was during a time in my life where I was really struggling. I was struggling with habitual sins. I was dealing with the guilt of my sin. I was dealing with a lot of self-condemnation, the shame of feeling like I was living a double life. I was dealing with a lot of social pressure on what was expected of me on all sorts of different angles. I was really worn down and I didn't know it. When I picked this up, I somehow tripped across Galatians. And it was like jumping in a clear, crisp, cold mountain stream on a hot day. The rush of joy and freedom in the pages I couldn't unsee it. I couldn't unsee it. And I hope this morning you can't either. So let's read it. This is from the message, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 15, and I will try to do it justice. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I'm emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision or any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the way of circumcision trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ for the obligations of the slave life of the law. I suspect you would never intend this, but this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we expectantly await for, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. You were running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you into the race in the first place. And please don't toss this off as insignificant. It only takes a minute amount of yeast, you know, to permeate an entire loaf of bread. Deep down, the master has given me confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, as I did in those pre-Damascus road days, that's absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then? If I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. 
Why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? Do you hear Paul? Do you hear him? Do you hear his cry of freedom? His, uh, his uh, you can stand me up at the gates of hell and I'm not going to back down. My old you know, 1980s Tom Petty song. <laughs> Paul's worked up. He's really worked up. He's worked up about the freedom that we have in Christ and us not trading it in for something cheap, something that's not freedom. He tells us it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So that begs the question, what's true freedom? What is true freedom? How do you define it? Defining true freedom, let, you know, discussions about freedom, the nature of freedom, how to promote freedom, preserve it, you know, all these things are as old as the human race itself. And I think that's because in the beginning we were created to be free. But that freedom was not intended to be handled apart from our attachment and our union with God. When sin entered, we became unattached to God. Sin separated us. We lost our freedom. And we've been trying to get it back ever since. But when we seek freedom apart from God, we only get parts of it. We only see distortions, false promises of freedom that turn out to not only not deliver, but they turn into slave masters. Now, Paul could have addressed all sorts of empty philosophies which are still echoing in the promises of freedom in our day as well. I don't have time to get into all of them. There's literally like a sermon worth in each, in each and every one of them as I was reading and studying and thinking, thinking about this. I mean, Paul could have addressed political philosophy that promises freedom through power and the rule of law. If you, if you just get the right laws and the right people in office, we're all good. There's some truth to that, but it's not the full promise of freedom. He could have addressed Gnostic thought that said the natural world was evil and freedom was found through discovering that secret knowledge of what makes you you deep inside and unlocking that, and you can't trust the material world. He could have addressed that, and in other places he does, but not here. He could have addressed Stoicism, the philosophy which, by the way, is making a comeback today uh, in, in the pendulum swing away from emotionalism to Stoicism, um, where it's th this idea of embracing logic and being emotionally detached, resolved, and unfrazzled self-assurance. That's where freedom is. Paul could have addressed that. He didn't. Paul could have addressed any of these visions of freedom and shown how they are not the gospel, but what Paul is most concerned about in this letter is not the distortion of freedom that comes from empty philosophy. He's concerned with the distortions that come from within the community tied to dead religion. As we seek to define true freedom in this passage, the first thing that we see is that true freedom is for living. This might seem like a no-brainer or go without saying, but that depends on what gospel you heard. I've talked about this before, but I grew up hearing kind of a piece of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins 
And if you trust him, you can go to heaven when you die. Now, that's super important, right? Can we agree? That's super, super, super important. That's an, an incredibly important aspect of the gospel. But it's not the entire story, and it's not the entire gospel. To the Corinthian church, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The accordance with the Scriptures bit points to the larger story of the redemption of the world, the renewal of all things, of first importance is dealing with our sin and paying the penalty for it. But God is up to a lot more than just that. That's, that, that's, that's, we, that's not the only thing that we inherit. That's a wonderful thing that we inherit. But we move into life. The, the, the story doesn't, uh, doesn't just end there. It's not like Jesus walks up, hands us a ticket and says, here you go. You're going to want to hold on to that. That gets you into heaven when you die. So, you know, hold on to it. Hang out. Might be a little rough down here for a little while, but don't worry. I'll be back. Or when you die, I'll see you. This, that's not the message of the gospel. No, the, 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 the full story is that he has come to rescue and adopt us. He starts to heal us. He commissions us to join him in his work, to, to, to make disciples, to renew all things. He comes to us, gives us his spirit. Life, eternal life starts now. It's not when I get to heaven with I've got my fire insurance policy and my ticket. Do I get in? Peter, Pearly Gates, that, that's all like, that's not the gospel. The gospel is eternal life starts now. We join him now. Ephesians, uh, the, the, idea that, the idea that God um, is putting all of his enemies, Jesus is putting all, all of his enemies under his feet, and, and he has a life for you and I to live, to, to join him in it. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've got things to do. We're not just waiting around. The free life God has called each of us to is the one he prepared for you. Did you know that God prepared a life and details and temperament and skills and gifting and difficulties all for you to live out with him? He has designed your life. This is not the same idea as find your passion and you'll never work a day in your life. This is not the promise of finding the secret you buried inside. No, this is a simple recognition that you individually matter to God and he created you. I don't know how many of you were uh, at the advanced conference to listen to Sam Albury on, on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. It was, it was really moving to me. It's kind of my, my, my favorite part of the entire night was, was just listening to him. And he reminded us that we are not mass produced. We don't come off of a conveyor belt. God is intimately acquainted with us. He picked up on, on David saying in Psalm 139, For it was you who formed me and formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me. All the days. Now we can read things like this and we can read it as a, as a collective. That's not what David's saying. All the days were formed for me. God knows you. Not just the collective us, and he's here because we're gathered in his name. That's all true. But he knows you. 
He knew all of your days, and all of those days were formed for you when none of them yet existed. God knew you. God wants you to live a free life because he wants you to live the life he intended and dreamed up for you. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are his disciple. You are a disciple of Jesus. In the great commission that Jesus gave us, we are not called to make disciples for ourselves. We are called to make disciples of Jesus. Even though God gives us apostles, he gives us prophets, gives us evangelists, gives us pastors, gives us teachers to influence us, to equip us for the work of the ministry. At the end of the day, you are not a disciple of any other person. You're not a disciple of your podcast person. You're not, a, you're, not a, you're not my disciple. You're a disciple of Jesus. Hmm. While God will give you people and a community to support you as you grow and discern what Jesus is asking of you, community is vital, important, and all of those other roles are vitally important. None of those people replace Jesus. I made this mistake. Very first person, when I was in art school, in college, I, lights went on, I actually came to faith, it was like, wow, all the stuff I heard about. Oh my gosh, God loves me. Wow, <laughs> like, like the lights went on. And, and uh, there, was a, there was one of my friends who was kind of like, <laughs> he was an interesting character, I'll just leave it at that. He came to Christ. He comes to Christ. First person that I've, I've won to Christ and uh, I just remember, like, working with him and reading the Bible. He'd have questions. I'd answer all of his questions. I'd answer every question that he had. I did not point him to Jesus in it. There's nothing wrong with answering some questions. But I learned that lesson. Oh, when I wasn't there, his faith sort of fell apart. And it's like, ah, I need to build people to connect to Jesus. It's good to answer questions. It's good to teach. It's good to look at the scriptures. But he's their Lord. He's the one who's going to be there long after I'm gone. He's their disciple. One of my favorite, favorite Catholic figures. Uh, I didn't grow up Catholic. I grew up in a Baptist church, but, so I don't have any like twitches when I hear the word Catholic. So, sorry if you do. <laughs> is St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi, I like him so much, I have his hairdo. <laughs> um, you know, this guy, he rejected his family fortune. He took a vow of poverty and of celibacy. He did not like the corruption that he saw in the Catholic Church. And a little-known fact about St. Francis is that during the height of the Crusades, this is why he's a stud, St. Francis traveled to share the gospel and broker peace with the Sultan of Egypt. He almost succeeded he almost succeeded. Here you have a man who could have very easily looked at his own life and seen it as how everyone should live theirs. But on his deathbed, this is what St. Francis said. I have done what is mine. May Christ teach you what is yours. I also want to make sure you're not hearing something that I'm not saying. I am not advocating an individualistic just be in Jesus faith. We need people. We need those who will reflect Christ and share their lives with us. A loving sense of accountability and relationship, we need it. God's designed that for you. I'm talking about, I, I'm not talking about this idea of just follow your heart wherever it takes you. Selfishly focusing on your own goals, building your own castle, your own kingdom, 
without any regard for others. No, Paul again says in this passage, it is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you would love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. No, I'm talking about living a life like Jesus and for Jesus and getting people around you that are going to keep pointing you back to Jesus. Point you back to Jesus when you fail, when you experience wins and you are are prone to get full of yourself so that you're constantly oriented to Christ who has set you free to live a free life. The next thing that we see is that true freedom requires active faith. Paul tells the Galatians to take their stand. He commands them, never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. True freedom has enemies and they are not passive. The first line of attack is to keep people from Jesus entirely. But the second line of attack is to keep Christians unfruitful and stuck in dead religion and old patterns. The Judaizers in Galatia were saying, you believe Jesus is the Messiah, that's great, but that's not the whole story. There are several other things that you need to do in order to to be right with God and to be in the family. First and foremost, the sign of circumcision. What they were essentially saying was was that Moses has to finish Jesus' work. That's absurd. Religion always adds to Jesus. People, uh, Paul says, don't let anyone put a yoke of slavery on you. That harness is the weight of the law, the weight of believing that your obedience to God is what gets you in and keeps you there, and it has both an individual and a collective outworking. How many of you thought, how many of you ever had this thought? You know, next month I'm going to read more. Um, I'm going I'm to eat better. You know, I'm going to call my parents more often. I'm going to stop swearing. I'm going to finally set my budget and stay within it. Fill in the blank, whatever your thing is. Whatever the, whatever the thing is, all of us have done that. I remember seeing a post of an old friend of mine. who <laughs> was talking about this phenomena. Uh, all of us, you know, talking about how we're going to do this and going to do that in the future. And he said, I can't wait to meet future me. He's awesome. (laughs) We all fall short of not only God's standards, but our own. You fall short of your own standards, right? Hello? Yeah. Yeah. If your relationship and standing before God is dependent on your performance, how do you think that's going to work out? I have good news. It's not. It's not. I remember in my early 20s, like I said, kind of same time I bought this book, struggling with habitual sin and feeling and thinking to myself, I should fast. That'll fix it. I'm going to fast. And I remember God lovingly at some point, not that fasting is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with fasting, but I was picking it up as if I was going to fix myself. And God said to me very lovingly but very firmly that it's not going to fix it. What did fix it was opening up to other people, confession, realizing God really loves me, realizing that in connection with other people that there was really nothing to be ashamed of. That's actually what started to fix it. It was not my own religious ideas. 
of how I was going to build a better Sean. That, that, didn't, that didn't cut it. But the yoke of slavery is not, just, is not just put on ourselves by our own sense of guilt or desire to be better. It's sometimes put on us by well-meaning people who think they're doing what God wants. But instead of pointing our eyes to Christ, point us to external rules or standards. Many, uh, many years ago, I had the opportunity to go with a friend and a mentor of mine, Shah Afshar. That's, uh, that's Shah. Um, he was born and raised as a Muslim in Iran. He came to Christ during the uh, hippie movement, the Jesus movement. Um, he's an amazing, amazing guy. He, was, uh, he pastored one of the first Persian churches in, in California, became a missions coordinator for all the Middle East for a large denomination. He was one of my college professors in seminary. Became a, became a dear friend and a mentor. And he invited me to go on this uh, conference that, that he was going to go on, and he was going to be the keynote speaker at this conference. Um, and uh, it was a conference for nat- uh, native Navajo pastors. It was a small gathering of about 30 pastors from all across the Navajo territories, and Shaw was their speaker. It was, it was a really humbling experience for me. I was the only white person there. In the, in, 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 in the middle of the desert with 30, 40 pastors, and I realized, oh man, I am, I'm, I'm the only white person here. And they really welcomed me and treated me well, but I could sense the slight discomfort with my presence because of what people like me had done to their people. I could just, I could just, I could just feel it. It was really amazing. They were super sweet, but it was a humbling experience. It was a humbling experience for me. But it was also just filled with joy and thrilling to hear my friend Shaw, who didn't share that background, get to challenge them and encourage them to pick back up their instruments of worship that they had left many, many years ago because white missionaries told them that they shouldn't use their drums. And for him to say, make a joyful noise, pick them back up. What are you doing? That's beautiful. That's wonderful. See, well-meaning people that look just like me did all sorts of damage by placing things that were not Christ onto, onto them. And I saw it. I still saw it. I still experienced it. It was amazing to watch somebody try to undo it and take them back, take them back to the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of what God has for them. Again, from the message, Paul's words to the Galatian church uh, about adding things to the gospel or trying to conform to the standards that are not centered on Christ. He's really, really passionate about this reality that we can't, we can't do this. We, you you, you, you can't, can't have it both ways. Again, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should have no standards or ideas on what following Jesus and loving one another looks like. It's a good thing for you to read your Bible. It's a good thing for a pastor to say, right? And it is true. You should. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's a good thing to pray for others. It's a good thing to care for the poor. It's a good thing. All of these are good things. But please don't take these things and make them the thing that makes you right. They're not the thing to make you right. They're means of accessing the one who makes you right. They're, the, they're, they're, they're good things that help put us in the path of a loving God that wants to shape us and love us and form us. Paul would say to us, our motivations matter. Each of those things, each of those things, all of these good things are opportunities to connect with Jesus. 
to share his life, to allow him to love you and to love him back. That is the point. John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who loves me will obey me. That, my friends, is horse before the cart. Anyone who loves me will obey me. Do we love him? Do we put ourselves in a position to look at him? To experience his love towards us and our own heart's response back. What happens is we become the kind of people who obey him. Naturally, not out of your own religious project. It is a natural outflowing of the promise of the better covenant, the spirit given to you, the spirit given to me, alive, living, waters of living water flowing out of us. Band, you guys can join me back up here. The final thing that we see is that true freedom comes from being lovingly attached to Jesus. Here in our passage and in many other places, Paul talks about a relationship with God and being in Christ. He says, meanwhile, we expectantly await for the satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior. Faith expressed in love. Faith expressed in love. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is is when the the Pharisees ask Jesus, what are the works that God requires in John chapter 6? And Jesus' response is this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. But it's not just mental assent. It is faith faith expressed in love. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2 that it was Christ who loved him and gave himself for him. So guess what? This starts with his love. It starts with his love for us. God is a God of relationship and he is after more than just correct theology. The correct theology is important. He's after more than just knowledge. James tells, us, James tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. They've got good theology. God is after more than that from you and me. Jesus gives us a more holistic picture of what God is after when he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, your whole life. How are we to do that? How are we to think ourselves into that? You can't just think yourself into it. In the past 20 years or so, it's been cool to see the world of neuroscience catch up to what the Bible has been saying for many, many, many years and years and years and years and years. We love because God first loved us. That's what, that, 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 that's what the Apostle John tells us. We love because God first loved us. God reflected to us his affection, his steadfast love and faithfulness as is written in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, the most common use of God's steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. It's, it's been said, that uh, an author's put it this way, to try to describe hesed, because it's just such a rich word. It said, hesed is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. That explains what it's like between a parent and a child that's well taken care of. As we experience the love of God, as we look at him, he looks back at us, and we experience formation. We experience what a, what a baby experiences, looking into the eyes of its mother or its, or its father. When a child looks up, the way the brain works, the way God has designed it, you look at the child and the child attaches. The child begins to understand they exist because they see themselves in the eyes of their parent. This is the same thing. We love him because he loved, first loved us. And I could do nothing for him. You could do nothing for him. But he loved you anyway. He picked you up. He adopted you. And he brought you into Christ. Our freedom is not found in externals. Our freedom is not found in your performance. Your freedom is not found in any of those things. Your freedom is found in loving attachment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and Shepherd and King who will lead you, who will instruct you, who will encourage you, who will correct you, who will build a life in you and show you how to live a free life. Amen. Jesus has saved us from dead religion. He's also saved us from old destructive patterns. Religion in and of itself is not evil. It's something that we do with regularity to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. That's what we do every time we gather together is we do something with regularity. But what we do with regularity is express the freedom that we have walked into because of the love of Jesus. And so what I'd like to invite us to do is, if you're a follower of Jesus, to go to the table at the back to my left, the frontier is wine, and to grab the elements that have brought us into freedom and to come back to your seat and we'll take communion together. free from dead religion, but that we are also free from behaviors that hold us hostage. I want to thank you that what we hold in our hands is a representation that you didn't come as some ethereal spirit. You came in a body tempted in the very way that we were tempted, experienced everything that we experienced, your body broken for our wholeness. Recognize that we glory in that and take joy in the fact that your broken body brings us wholeness and healing. Let's eat together.
together as we take this representation of your blood poured out to pay the penalty of our sin, to break the power of sin, Satan, and death over our lives, to be able to present us before the Father, pure, spotless, and holy. We take this in remembrance of you. just struck by something Sean said. Sean's freedom from a double life did not come because he developed a strategy to live with his double life. Sean's freedom from a double life came because Jesus set him free from living a double life. And I want to pray for those that are stuck in this, uh, this cycle of, let me try something else religious like fasting, to be free. Let me try some more dead religion to be free from those things. But I also want to pray for those that are stuck in patterns of habitual sin. Jesus sets us free from both of those. That's why, that's why it is so powerful. And as we continue with the song, I just want to invite you to receive prayer. Like Sean said, it was, it was confession and having people that walked alongside him be able to break that cycle of sin and shame. It wasn't overnight, but it was a, those powerful moments, even in our lives, in my life. So I want to invite you for that freedom from dead religion, freedom from broken patterns of brokenness in our lives. Let's worship him. to be free at last if you want to know what it means to not be tied up with religion to have your sins forgiven to be welcomed into a family not based on your performance it's as simple as what Sean said believe in the one that he sent which is Jesus Christ his son Jesus Christ I place my faith in you my hope my future And my past is wrapped up in what you did on the cross. You are resurrected, seated at the right hand of God. I'm your child. It's that simple. However, we would love to know if you've done that. And we would love to walk you through some next steps in terms of what that means. And if that's you this morning, I'd love you to talk to someone on my left. For the rest of us, we're going to enjoy the break in rain with uh, some coffee and sugared starch. Let's go out there and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, Please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.